I believe that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I love the music. I love the decorating. I love it all. How many people already decorated your Christmas tree? Oh, yeah. How many? How many? No, no, not even close yet. You're too ashamed. It's okay. It's all right. If I don't do it the Friday after Thanksgiving, it, it doesn't happen until really close to Christmas at our house. And so I love the music. I love the food. I love the trees. I love the family fights. It's awesome. <laughs> we all know that if we're not careful, you can miss what Christmas is really about. You can, it, it seems like it's crazy that that could happen because we're just inundated nonstop with Christmas, Christmas. But most of that has to do with commercialism. And sometimes we can get sucked into the commercialism and we can get sucked into the, 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 the list of things you have to do and you miss the hope. You miss the peace. You miss the incarnation. You miss the fact that Christmas is about God coming to our little blue planet and communicating who he is. And I think we got to grasp that. We have to embrace that as God's people. It's so important. And so that's why we're going to talk about Christmas for a few weeks here. And when you peer into the story each year, you kind of see maybe some familiar characters. You have your usual cast of characters. There's Mary, sweet little Mary, teenage girl, probably, most likely. An angel visited her and and told her that something profound was going to happen, and she didn't quite understand it all, but she was willing. Everybody say willing. Then you have Joseph. Joseph had a little tougher journey. He had to decide what to do with this pregnant woman <laughs> that he was betrothed to, and so he, he, he had a little more uh, difficult journey, and then there's the baby Jesus in the manger <laughs> with the foot. Right, right. That's uh, Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian. It's awesome. Not quite Baby Jesus, but close. Baby Jesus, he's a little tiny. Jesus was, you know, Jesus is huge. It was tiny Jesus in a baby. And these are kind of the stars of our story. Right? These are the characters in the story, and we hold them up sometimes as examples of godliness that we can't live up to. And I think nothing could be further from the truth in this regard. Because Christmas wasn't nearly as glorious as we've made it out to be in our stories. It wasn't quite as beautiful as your nativity set at home. Because there are other people in the, in the story as well, people on the outskirts of the story. Wise men, shepherds, King Herod, angels. I wonder if sometimes we feel a little bit more like we're on the outside looking in to the Christmas story. I may, I may not be able to identify with Mary or Joseph, but I can identify with the stinky shepherds, right? Like, like, like we see ourselves, sometimes we, we miss what God was actually doing in this incredible Christmas story. And there's a prophecy in Micah 
the book of Micah, an Old Testament book, hundreds of years before Jesus even shows up. There's this prophecy, and you, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you will see them over and over and over again. Prophecies that are saying what is to come. And it's this particular word is mentioned in all the gospel stories. And it's cool to read in the Old Testament where it came from Micah 5, 2 through 4. I'm going to read it in the message translation, which is kind of a street version translation uh, by Eugene Peterson. He says, but you Bethlehem, David's country, the runt of the litter, from you will come the leader who will shepherd rule Israel. He'll be no upstart, no pretender. His family tree is ancient and distinguished. Jesus will come from Bethlehem is what this passage says. But he describes it because this tribe is one of the tiniest tribes in all of Israel. And, and Eugene translates it as the runt of the litter. From the runt, the outsider, will come the leader who will shepherd and rule Israel. Another translation says, too little to be among the clans of Judah is Bethlehem. God chose the runt to the, be the place where his son and his rescue plan would start. And this gives us a picture of what God thinks about outsiders. Gives us a picture of what God thinks about people who feel like they don't quite fit, don't belong. And if this is you, God chose the runt of the litter for the birth of his son, the Messiah. And you need to see that this is for you. We're going to look at a group of supposed outsiders for the next few weeks and how did the birth of Jesus ex uh, uh, affect them and what did they do with it. And so today we're starting with the Magi, the wise men. Matthew chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, if you want to follow along on your device, it'll be on the screen. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Now, Lord, would you illuminate the story? Let it come to life in our lives and let us see you accurately. Let us see ourselves accurately and help us to follow and obey by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 2, 1 through 12 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chiefs, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, what we just read. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from the from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Dun, dun, dun. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, the scripture says. And they 
on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented them, uh, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and they had been warned. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to the Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, I want you to think about these magi people. I want you to think about these wise men for a moment because we usually think about them something like this. Like we see them in our minds. This is how our nativity scenes kind of show them anyway. It's where we get the song, We Three Kings. You ever heard that song? We three kings of Orient are. I don't know why I sing it like that. <laughs> I think it comes from a record that my mom used to play on the hi-fi stereo, you like, like console piece of furniture. You ever seen that? So we, awesome Christmas record. Love that Christmas record. Perry Como, Dean Martin, all these, all these people. It was awesome. Some of you are like, Who? incredible Christmas record, but there's this one moment on the record, I have a vivid memory of it, and it would come on and it would creep me out. We three kings of Orient are. It's like, oh my gosh, who are these people? Three, and by the way, there wasn't necessarily three of them. Tradition says there were three, but probably based on the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or as I like to call it when I was a kid, gold, frankenstein, and myrrh. But we picture them with turbans and from the Orient and riding camels and traveling for a few days and showing up at the manger with some sweet gifts. And then avoiding Herod on the way home and because he was a crazy person. He was trying to kill Jesus, and they knew it. And so we sort of sterilize the story a lot of times when we see it. We think it was all sort of neat and Tidy, almost wrapped up like a sitcom. Here's something I found on Instagram. Wise men actually just sent gifts using free prime shipping, scholars now believe. <laughs> it's like somehow we modernize the story and take all the grit out of it. We got to understand something else was happening. In reality, <laughs> in reality, we don't know very much about the wise men. The Magi were probably more along the lines of religious advisors to royalty and Magi can refer to magicians or astrologers or experts in interpreting dreams or other strange happenings. They were most likely, these were learned men, religious men, men of faith who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so they were also men of science. Like they were astronomers and they studied the stars. Matthew just says they came from the east, but some scholars say from they came from Babylon or maybe somewhere in the area of Iran in the Middle East. And they're coming because an expectation had circulated in the first century world that a ruler would rise from Judea. And they know about this from these prophecies from the Jewish community in their homeland. For example, Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, 17 says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And at the heart of many of these prophecies about the coming Messiah, they, they would have known them. At the heart of it are these predictions about how he would bring God's peace and justice to the whole world. That was the concept. And justice to the whole world, not just to the Jews, but also to these men who would set out to find him, people 
on the outside of the story. So they followed a star, and no one really knows what that looked like either. Like Some say it was a natural phenomenon that you can trace back to an astronomical event, right? Like, like it was a comet or a supernova or a conjunction of two planets, you know, where they align and it becomes really bright in the star. Astronomers think that Jupiter and Saturn were in conjunction together three, check this out, three times in 7 B.C., so Jupiter was known as the royal or kingly planet, and Saturn was sometimes thought by some to represent the Jews. So the conclusion was obvious. A new king of the Jews was about to be born, and then others say the star was just a supernatural astral event by God, like, like um, God put a star in the sky and then just started moving it around for them to follow. <laughs> Still others think it could have been an angel that they were following. Like um, angels are commonly referred to in the scriptures as stars. And we know that angels are prominent throughout the whole Christmas story, revealed to Mary, revealed to Joseph. A shepherd appeared to the, sh- uh, sorry, an angel appeared to the shepherds. And the truth is we just don't know exactly what happened. But then there's this. They weren't really at the manger scene at all. They weren't at the manger scene at all. Sorry to ruin your nativity set. I was just talking to somebody in the hallway (laughs) in between. He's like, I have a friend who puts her wise men in the other room. (laughs) Serious scholar. And so, so most likely, here's the deal, though. They traveled a really long way. Like they had traveled, some Bible scholars say, up to two years of a journey, meaning they would have showed up when Jesus was about two years old. And when they came, they brought him gifts, of course, but the scripture says so they could worship him. And they, 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 they would have spent time away from their families. They would have given up the comforts of home for this journey, following a star. So the question I have for you this morning is what was it that drove these men on this journey? Men of wealth, men of influence. What drove them? What influenced them to start this trek? Because their goal in Matthew 2 is very clear. It says the wise men came to worship him. I think that's your first fill in the blanks. The wise men came to worship him. We don't know much about their them or their journey, what we do know for sure is that Gentiles, everybody other than Jewish people, outsiders, were some of the first people, get this, first people to recognize and come to worship Jesus. From the very beginning, God welcomed the outsiders. Jesus was born king of the Jews, but his rescue plan extends to the entire world. And this is no small detail in the story. Christmas is for everybody. Come on, you need to smile a little bit. You guys have terrible resting faces this morning. I don't know if it's the holidays or what, but Christmas is for everyone. <laughs> Some of you are like. Mm. And they found themselves, these wise men found themselves in the middle of political intrigue after being sent by Herod. Why? Because Herod considered himself king of the Jews. He was threatened. 
He's also known as Herod the Great, Herod the First. He was a Roman client king of Judea, referred as the, to as the Herodian kingdom. He, his rise to power as the provincial governor of the area uh, came from his father's good standing with Julius Caesar. So his dad got him his first job. And the history, the, his, his history is very polarized because he built all these colossal buildings. He did incredible things. He built Masada, if you've ever heard of that. He, he built the expanded the Temple Mount. He actually rebuilt the second temple in Jerusalem. And so, but he was also totally self-absorbed, paranoid, and constantly feared conspiracy. And so he actually executed his wife when she was suspected of, of plotting against him. And so three of his sons, another wife, and his mother-in-law all met the same fate when they too were suspected of conspiracy. Yeah, he was, he was a dreamboat. Sweet man. <laughs> the truth is, the truth is, he had no desire to worship Jesus. He was lying. He only wanted to retain his title and his power and his position. All his motivations were selfish. Think about it. All his motivations were selfish. No journey, no joy, no gifts, no worship. How easy it is for you and me to go through the holiday season, the Christmas season, that way. Consider, though, the magi who were driven by something more powerful and something more significant, something that kept them on course through the desert sands of the Middle East, and it was much more than just King Herod's commission that sent them to Jesus, and that's why when they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they went home another way, because they weren't following Herod, they were following another king. Their hearts were intent on finding him and worshiping him. So no doubt they were men of means, but they were also, it appears, men of conviction. Everybody say conviction. 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 They were willing to give not just their possessions, but their effort, their energy, their conveniences. They gave them up to find something, some, to find someone that was so valuable to them. They certainly weren't driven by their own wealth because they got there and they, they offered the most precious gifts they had, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's not, it's, it's, it's not clear exactly how that happened, but there were gifts. Matthew makes sure we understand that. And it's worth noting that these gifts were significant as well because sometimes we kind of mess with it. I found this recently. Are we sure the wise men who brought frankincense and myrrh weren't just trying to sign Mary up for their essential oils pyramid scheme? (laughs) (laughs) You got to understand, these gifts, they were significant. Gold, which is uh, mentioned, the most often mentioned medal in the whole scripture. It It is a royal medal. It is a kingly medal. And gold points to the fact that Jesus is the king of the world. Frankincense was used as part of the recipe for the only incense permitted on the altar in the temple. It was used by the priests. Frankincense points to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. And then myrrh is actually a sap that comes from a small tree in places like India. And the, the Jews didn't practice full embalming of dead bodies, but they would wash and dress them and pack it, pack them, them with myrrh. 
and other fragrant spices to deal with the smell of a dead body. It was used in burial preparations, and so myrrh pointed to the fact that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. Gold represents his kingship. Frankincense represents his priesthood. Myrrh represents his death and resurrection. The crazy part is, the crazy part is, the Magi were probably totally unaware of this significance. They weren't aware of all that. They probably didn't know the significance of what they were giving. God was foreshadowing, pointing to the truth for all of us, and the Magi were just bringing what they had, their treasures. They didn't know how significant they would be. Interestingly, Jesus would say later in the New Testament, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And what that means is your treasure focuses your heart. Whatever you value the most, this is what will drive your life. These wise men were not driven by their riches or their treasures. They were driven by something deeper and more meaningful than tradition. For them, this was personal. It was personal. You don't do something like this unless there's a personal stake in it. They were seeking the Christ for themselves. They were not seeking out riches, not looking for power, not hungry for glory, not interested in the politics of what was going on. They were seeking the Christ so they might worship him. And what we know is that God shows himself to those who seek him. Because God says through the prophet Jeremiah, those who seek him will find him when they seek him with all of their heart. So the truth is, we don't, know much about them or these gifts, but it's totally fun to speculate. (laughs) It's totally fun to do the research. Matthew isn't concerned with the details of who they were or what they brought. Why? Because he was more concerned about why they brought them. It really wasn't about the gifts. They just came to worship him. And today on this Legacy Sunday, I want you to remember, it's not really about the gifts that you bring. I mean, that's, it's nice. It's about something so much deeper, something so much more profound, something that gets way down deep on the inside of your heart. What should we learn from these wise men? These briefly mentioned outsiders in the story this Christmas? I want to suggest three things. Number one, our best gifts are personal. Our best gifts are personal. In other words, motivation and heart actually matter. For the wise men, this was personal. They brought their best to worship him. But so much of our interaction today in our modern Christmas context, it's not personal, it's transactional. Have you noticed the the pressure that you, you feel when you get a gift from somebody, someone else? Oh, great, now I have to get them something. Or your girlfriend, like, gets you something awesome and expensive for Christmas, and you're like, oh. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Not many guys with girlfriends in here. Okay. <laughs> there's, something called, there's something called re-gifting. You know what re-gifting is? Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You find something been laying around for a while, it seems like it'll work. It's transactional. We give because we give it, but it's not, there's no feeling. There's nothing personal attached to it. There's no meaning behind it. Our motivation is not felt. It's not personal. It's more obligation than anything else. In fact, sometimes we even give in order to get something back. We interact with people in an expectation of reciprocity in our culture. Ooh, that's a fun word to know and say. Reciprocity. 
You know it's true. When someone invites you for dinner, what do you do? You, I got to invite them back for dinner. My wife, her love language, her best love language is quality time. And quality time is the most expensive gifts that there are. Because <laughs> she doesn't just love, I can't just buy her a gift and she's like happy. No. You know what her best gift is? Vacation. <laughs> Not from us, <laughs> with us. <laughs> and I love that about her. <laughs> I do. She loves me so deeply. She wants to be with me. And I want to be with her. Oh, man, you guys are, like, weird. <laughs> the point is, she wants personal interaction. Every marriage requires personal interaction in both directions. In a loving relationship, that's how it works. And there has to be meaning behind what is done. On our, on our best days, we're, we tort- sort of end up transactional sometimes in our culture. On our worst days, we might even give in to the desire to control our circumstances or control others with our gifts. Hey, everybody, this is not how God interacts with us. This is not how God interacts. He gave his son, he gave everything to us in his son, Jesus. It was personal for him. He did it with no expectation that you would give anything back. He just had hope. Romans 5.8 says it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What God wants is a personal, intimate, close relationship with me and you. In everything we do, he's provided a way for that to happen He's pulled us to himself by sending Jesus to say it, to say, look, I have only the best for you. I love you deeply. I want to give myself to you. I want you to see miracles and signs and wonders. I want you to understand what the kingdom is all about, and I want you to be part of it, and I'm going to give my life away, Jesus said, so that you can know who the Father really is. It's intimate. It is a relationship. (laughs) Actually, Jesus reserved his angriest emotions and his harshest words for those who resorted to religious transactions. This for that. He he, he was most angry at those who exerted religious control instead of personal relationship. Those were the religious leaders of his day. They, They obeyed to be sure, right? But they had no connection with the heart of God. He wasn't interested in their obedience as proof of their holiness. Their motives were off. Their motives were wrong. But here's the thing. God is interested in our motives. In fact, it's fundamental. He's interested in your heart. First and foremost, God doesn't need your gold. He doesn't need your gold. He doesn't need your stuff. He has plenty. But he wants you and me to give him, give it to him, And give to those in need because it's good for our hearts to do so. It's good for our hearts. That's why the legacy offering is so important. It's not about really what you give. The gold is, in fact, the 
gold is only meaningful if it's given with the right motivation. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others, which how messed up do you have to be to have a system where people come with trumpets and stuff for you to give to the poor? Like that is messed up. That's a messed up way of thinking. Jesus is saying, this is not how it works. He says, truly, I tell you, they received their reward in full. Nice golf clap. Way to go. Jesus is saying there are better rewards than the praise of men. He's saying there's something more. He says, he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done way down here on the inside of your soul will reward you. See, I think it's what, the reason Jesus says this is because he wants us to believe that God's opinion matters most. And his opinion is based on what nobody else can see. He knows you better than anybody. And he wants you to know him better than anyone else. It's personal. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. The best you can give, the best gift you can give is the personal one. It's you. It's yourself. Number two, our best gifts come from our hearts, not our hands. Not our hands. You ever gotten a homemade gift? It's awesome, isn't it? Not really. <laughs> It's like, it's almost never as nice as something in the store. They made it for you. But at the same time, you're like, oh my goodness, you put the time and the energy and the effort. So sometimes it's the best gift you could ever get. Because they did something with their hands, but it was from their We like to use our hands, right? Like there's a sense that we have this illusion of control in the world we live in. I'm in charge. I can do this. I can fix this. I can, I can make this happen. And when we were babies, we started to reach out and grab whatever was near us. <laughs> to control what was around us. To control our universe. Because we want to control our surroundings. And in fact, that's what makes Star Wars and Baby Yoda so cool. Yoda in general, you just control things, right? Jedi power, mind tricks. It's like, oh, we're controlling all these things. Why do they always have to use their hand, though? It's all connected. We want to force the world sometimes into submission with our own will. Unfortunately, this doesn't really stop until we let go at the grave. Our hands are capable of great compassion, but also great destruction. Here's the secret. It's our heart that determines what our hands do. It's our heart that determines what our hands do. Our heart is at the center of our life, the determiner of our attitudes, of our speech, of our actions, and ultimately the determiner of our destiny and our legacy. It starts way down deep on the inside. But the truth is the dynamics of all this are even more intricate and complex because it's the health of our heart that God's most interested in. Because he knows that our hands will act out of that health, out of that goodness, or out of the depravity and the deficiency 
of what's in our hearts. So our hearts have to be changed. They have to be transformed, renewed by God himself. We can't do this alone. Luke, 4, or Luke 6, 43 through 45 says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs and thorn bushes from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. The, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That is it right there. What God does, the miracle of God, the hope of God, the joy that God wants to place in your heart is lifting the evil out of that heart and replacing it with his goodness. Because we're all capable of great evil and we need our hearts transformed because the greatest gift anyone can receive is a heart transformation from God. A heart transformation. Our greatest gift to God is surrendering the deepest motives. That's what God's really interested in, the deepest motives of our heart. He wants to get a hold of that because he knows everything else will flow from it. You might have heard the classic short story called The Gift of the Magi by a really amazing author, wrote tr tremendous short stories named O. Henry. O. Henry, and this is a story about Della and Jim. And Della had this long, flowing, knee-length hair, cascading, beautiful brown hair. And Jim had a gold watch that had been passed down from his dad and his grandfather. And the story moves along. They were in love. They were trying to buy each other Christmas gifts, and they were poor. Della cuts her hair because she wants to give a gift to Jim. Cuts her hair to buy the gold, gold chain that goes with the watch so he can wear it. Jim sells the gold watch. Unknown by Della, he sells the gold watch to purchase a tortoise shell comb that will hold up her hair with jewel rims. Here's what the author had to say about his story. He says, here I lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most otherwise or most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these are the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the magi. They both gave something that was focused on the other person. And they were willing to give up something they valued for the sake of the other. And that's why number three is our best gifts are sacrificial. Our best gifts are sacrificial. The act of sacrificial giving defines what it means to actually love another person. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. We have trouble with this. So many marriages have trouble with this. We, it's a tug of war syndrome and people are like fighting with each other and so often marriage counselors will try to get couples to just serve or help the other one, like meet their needs. The whole idea of marriage is based on allowing the other person to meet your needs instead of you having to demand it. 
In the story, the treasure has changed. Their treasure is not for themselves, it's for the other. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Many people mistakenly quote this verse. They inaccurately quote it. They think it says, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure will go. They, they misquote it. It's, that's not what it says at all. That's not what Jesus intended at all. Check this out. Jesus said, your heart follows your treasure. Whatever you treasure, that's where your heart's going to go. So I have the simple question for you today. What is your treasure? What do you treasure most? He's saying your heart will always gravitate towards where your treasure goes. And that seems to be true of the Magi as well. Their hearts were following what they treasured most, the Christ child, the God's son, Jesus. That means they were willing to use any amount of treasure, any amount of time, any amount of effort and sacrifice to chase what really matters most. And it was personal for them. Would you be willing to make things personal between you and God today?